Welcome to Impacting Jamaica, where we shine the spotlight on the many but often ignored positive happenings, activities, projects, and investments at every level across every sector to inspire, motivate, and excite people everywhere. Impacting Jamaica is powered by the Philip and Christine Gore Family Foundation. Now let's catch part two of this hugely interesting interview with Benjamin Zephaniah. Thank you so much for your time and for saying yes to being part of this podcast. It's an absolute honor, Dr. Benjamin Zephaniah. I am your host, Sinai Flary. Um, I grew up in West London to um, Caribbean parents. My dad was from Grenada. My dad's from Grenada. My mom's from St. Vincent. And we grew up in a Rastafarian household. And I remember the only time we would see a Rasta on TV was either when it was you <laughs> or Bob Marley. And I remember, um, you know, multiple times being in the bedroom playing to hear my mum call me, Sinai, Sinai, come, come <laughs> quick. She used to call us. She used to call all the children and say, look, here's an example. Here is Benjamin Zephaniah. He was doing an interview. You'd be presenting. You might be doing social commentary. And from as young as I was, it was like you became like a hero you know it was you and Bob Marley that that's what we knew that's what we knew and I remember one time you was invited to my primary school to perform poetry for Black History Month and I I sat there and I was like oh my gosh he's from the TV and I went <laughs> and I told my mom I said guess who came to my school she's like who I said Benjamin Zephaniah she said no way and she felt so proud that not only did I know who you was when you came to the school but also I knew a bit about you. And I just wanted to ask you, like, did you ever feel like a sense of pressure being perhaps the only raster on TV in the UK at the time, aside from Bob Marley, to sort of represent an entire group of people? Well, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, I always used to say that I was representing myself. Yeah. There were times when I could say, for example, this area of the black community is policed too heavily or something like that. Yeah. But I could never claim to be speaking on behalf of all the black people. I would say, this is how I feel. And I think that many black people feel the same. I could say that. Um, but I tell you what I used to, this may sound strange, but um, in those days, I didn't realize that, that <laughs> Exactly what you said, you know, people were thinking, oh, there's few black people on television, there's Benjamin Zephaniah, you know. Um, at the time, looking back now, I think, oh, yeah, of course. You know, it was just Americans. There may have been Lenny Henry, but he was doing comedy. And his comedy was, it wasn't something that we all took to, especially his early days of comedy. A lot of us were quite uncomfortable with it, you know. Um, but so at the time, I didn't really realize. But I'll tell you what I used to feel responsible for. There was this stereotype of black people, especially Rasta people, that they were always late mm. or slightly off their heads and kind of slightly incomprehensible. And I would never do that. I would always be at the studio on time. I would always know what I'm going to talk about. I never rehearsed answers. I never did anything like that. So sometimes you can see me thinking, genuinely thinking. Um, but I would never be off my head or anything like that, you know. I always said I don't want to perpetuate that kind of stereotype. Yeah. Um, and so I guess it, when I was doing programs, the, the, the media, which was very white, they knew that they could 
rely on me. They said, you know, turn up at this time to do a show. I would turn up. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only responsibility I felt. And actually, when I was younger, if you look at really young films of me, I sounded more Jamaican than I am now, right? In fact, in a way, I sound completely more older and looked older. When I look at some of them, I kind of think, am I getting younger? Or, you know, it's really <laughs> weird. Um, I'm sounding younger and kind of looking young, which is bizarre. But, but um, and I think it's because when I was in Birmingham, it was very Jamaican and I kind of spoke more Jamaican. And then I remember kind of um, doing an interview once and somebody said to me, I can't remember exactly what the question was, but the the answer was something like, well, listen, Babylon have a burn and we have a burn it down. And, you know, something like that. And in the paper the next day, it was Benjamin Zephaniah inciting riots, you know, and I just thought, okay, when I'm in front of the media, I've got to be careful because they will interpret it a completely different way. Yeah. You know, I remember I did a program once about London and the things I like in London, a simple program like that. And um, it was like, what club do you like? Where do you go for this? Where do you go for that? And I was in a restaurant and it was one of my favorite vegan restaurants. And I said, you know, this is one of my favorite places. And they said, how do you know a good restaurant? And I said, well, if the toilets are clean, it usually means the kitchens are clean, Mm. you know? because the toilet is one of the last things they think about normally. Yeah. And I said, you know, is it a Jamaican restaurant? Well, do Jamaicans eat there? Italian restaurant, do Italians eat there? Ethiopian restaurant, do Ethiopians eat there? Mm-hmm. That's also a good sign. And I said, in the kitchen, I don't want just men. Women should be in there too. I like a mixture because mm-hmm. men will cut corners. But when women are in there, men behave better, you know? Yeah. The newspaper headline the next day said, Benjamin Zephaniah likes his women in the kitchen. You know? completely, completely spun it and, and made yes. something out of it. Yes. Oh my God. You know, people were calling me. That's how I knew people were calling me. Stephanie, man, we are talking about blah, blah, blah. And I had to wake up and go and buy a copy of the paper. And, and, yeah. and, and, and so, in that way, I feel a sense of responsibility. Yeah. And I felt it certainly back then. But now I think people understand more that, you know, I'm speaking for myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. Definitely. I mean, you mentioned how the media spin things and stuff. And I think one of the most prominent memories for me was in 2003 when you was offered an OBE and um, you, you refused it for reasons that you gave. Um, and now I think in 2020, 2021, there's been a lot of research into the history and legacy of slavery and the empire. I think people have a better understanding of that volatile and horrific history that now perhaps if you was offered an OBE and you refused it now in 2021, I feel like you wouldn't have got as much criticism as you did back then. Whereas some of us were actually cheering you on for you know, refusing an OBE. Do you think that if you was offered it now and you refused, would people be more supportive of your decision based on the fact that they've done all this history and digging over the last couple of years? Well, first of all, let me tell you that this is not just me saying this. This has been researched by academics and people. But there was much more praise when I received the OB than there was kind of negative. I mean, some newspapers were negative. Yeah. And a couple of newspapers got Trevor Phillips to say a couple of things negative. But on the whole, it was much more positive. Yeah. People saying, yeah, somebody standing up to the system, you know, somebody actually, you know, speaking his truth. And I think now, 
Because a lot more people have refused it. They felt more confident. And some people say that I gave them the confidence. Now, I think there would be a similar response. I'm going to tell you why. Because for the people that refuse it now, most of the time you don't hear about it. What I did that, that was very different was when I refused it, I wrote a 2,000 word article in The Guardian about why I refused it. And I went on, so, um, on social media in those days, just went on the media and, and talked about it. That's the difference. David Bowie refused it. Uh, you know, lots of people refuse the OBE and MBEs and stuff. But when you get the letter, they tell you, don't make a noise about this. This is secret. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you don't want it, just tick a box. Mm-hmm. Well, when I got offered it, it, they offered it, they almost like offered it to me at the wrong time because the Gulf War was going on. My um, cousin had been killed. Um, I was trying to, I, I, I met Tony Blair, so I kind of knew him, but I was trying to get him to speak to me about certain things and he just wouldn't entertain me. And then I get the letter, you know, from him via the Royal House. And I'm like, he knows I'm trying to find him. I, I knew people that knew him. I, I, I left messages with him. I know, he, you know, this, this is the guy that can ring me, right? And yet, you know, he's offering, he's offering me an MBE, an OBE for my services to literature. That's why in the letter, I said, why didn't you offer me for my fight against slavery or for my animal rights campaigning and all this? You want to bring me in on a little safe ticket. Mm-hmm. It's kind of my services to literature. Mm. what about my campaigning for human rights all those things you seem to overlook and at the time Bush was here the American president Mm. and I said well I'm going to keep it quiet I'm not going to do anything but the moment he's gone um, I'm going to release this article I remember my agent at the time she rang me she went Benjamin have you been offered an OBE I said, yes, why? Who told you? Well, the Buckingham Palace have been calling me. They want to know what you're doing, what you're doing. And so for a couple of days, Buckingham Palace, Tony Blair, everybody's ringing me. I'm thinking, how come they want to talk to me now? Suddenly everybody's interested in, you know? And I didn't communicate with any of them. And then I said, all right, here's the article. Here's our feel. And that's what makes a difference, you know. Merle Collins, she was studying in the University of West Indies and a few other people. I was talking to Michael Ibu Cooper the other day um, from Third World, and he's now a professor in the university there. Um, And they all said, when that happened, it's like in the arts and humanities, it's like, stop everything. Let's read what this brother is saying now. The first one to actually take a stand against the this kind of idea of empire and giving us well-behaved kind of um, um, subjects of the, of, of the crown, um, uh, giving them kind of uh, behaving to them, you know, and saying, well, we love you, we love you. Oh, give us a sweet, yeah, little medal for being a good citizen. Let's have a look at a brother who's standing up against that, you know. So I think that's the difference. And I think if it happened now, I would still do it now. And I think that would still be different. Because mm-hmm. I can tell you loads of people in the black community who have turned down the OBE, um, but they've done it relatively quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't do that. If I do something like that, I've got to back it up with my thoughts behind it. Yeah. 
And it, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable story and it's an incredible part of your legacy because I remember that like yesterday. I remember my parents talking about it. I remember going to like um, Nyabingi celebrations and all the elder rasses were saying, yes, this is for Benjamin <laughs> Zephaniah. We're going to say a prayer for you. I remember it like yesterday. It was, it was a really, really historic moment. Um, I, well, I remember about- going to... Go on. Sorry, I, just, I, won't, I, won't, I don't want to cut you too long, but I remember going to doing some youth club work and, and things like that in, in, around East London and people were just clapping me, you know, when I walked in and I was, I was on the street. And then a couple of weeks after, I had to go to Nigeria and do a tour. And when I landed at the airport, there was like, you know, like when the Queen lands or somebody yeah. and there's lots of people there to see them. It was like that. It was like all these Nigerians. I'm, I'm, I'm funny enough, my sister's married to a Nigerian, so that gave me even more credibility there, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Amazing. And I mean, I, I wanted to go back to, I mentioned it at the start of the interview, actually. On your website, it says, poet, uh, writer, musician, and naughty boy. Ex- explain <laughs> that last description, please. <laughs> I'll tell you what it was, right? I was at a university and I was receiving some kind of award. And so this academic was reading all the things that I've done. And they were saying, you know, well, you've said a lot of it, you know, talking about my music, talking about my poetry, talking about my travels and this and the other. But in a very academic way, you know, how many students now study my poetry in in school and stuff like this. and then at the end of it, my mum went just, my mother, who was in the audience, just went, and, and him is a naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody just felt about laughing. Right. <laughs> so I said, right, I'm going to put that on my website, you know. <laughs> and, um, but it is kind of true. I mean, all the things I used to like doing when I was young, I still like doing now. I still play football. I love climbing trees. I love hanging out with animals. I still get childish kicks. Mm. I still enjoy being not childish, but childlike, mm. you know? And anybody who knows me in person will know that when they, if they come to my yard, I'm playing games, I'm doing things, I'm, I'm popping up behind doors and, <laughs> and you know, to, to scare them and stuff like that. Um, so there is that side to me still. I, we, we all have to, you know, we all have to try and stay in touch with the child inside us, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, 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 you cannot, in this day, you cannot say, well, I don't like black people or I don't like white people or I don't like gays, I don't like this, I don't like that. But we can all say, oh, I don't like children. Mm. But it doesn't matter if you're black, white or whatever. We were all children. Mm-hmm. What happens is, as we grow up, we forget that child in us. Mm-hmm. And we think children are for controlling. Actually, I love the child's sense of play, that, that pursuit of pleasure. So yeah, I am naughty, and I'm proud of being naughty. <laughs> and my mother sometimes, sometimes I'll do something, right? And my mother will say, I am 87, you are 63, but I can still slap your backside, you know? <laughs> so you do what I tell you, you naughty boy, you know? Oh. And we play around like that, you know? Yeah. And we love it. And, and again, because of what I alluded to before with me and my mum being so close, we know what we're talking about. Sometimes we can be politically incorrect. We can say things that are a bit 
you'd have to be careful if you said it in public. But we know what we're talking about and we know what we can get away with and it's kind of slightly naughty and whatever, but it's a long running joke that we've had for a long time. Yeah. And I, other I people love don't hearing understand you speak it. about your bonds. I love hearing you speak about your bond with your mum. She must be so yeah. proud of you. You've had such an incredible and successful and illustrious career. For you, I mean, among all the awards and accolades you've been given over the years, what's been your biggest career highlight? The, I mean, there's so many things. I think one of the things I'm most proud of is, and it's funny because it's not really my achievement, it's just my part in it, is the freeing of South Africa. Mm -hmm. I can remember when it wasn't a popular movement in Britain. And in fact, when it when it when there was protests and things it was tended to be kind of white liberals the caribbean community wasn't that much involved in the struggle and i remember talking to a lot of the anc people who were exiled in england and they were saying to me why don't the caribbean people support us you know this is in the 70s right mm -hmm. we used to go on anti-apartheid demonstrations and there'd only be a handful of blacks mm. And most of the time when I went and talked to the blacks, they were South Africans. There were very few Jamaicans or Bajans or St. Lucians or anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. And we had a drive. You know, I used to go on television back in the day. You probably saw me going, free South Africa. Then better free South Africa. Because too many children dying down there when people in the West them just don't care. Free South Africa. I mean, that was revolutionary on primetime television. A son of a Jamaican talking about freeing South Africa. When I made that, that record, Free South Africa, I put an AAA, Artist and Athlete Against Apartheid, we formed an, an organization to show solidarity with the people of South Africa. And then I became friends with Mandela. And um, now when I first met Mandela, the first thing he kept doing was just like thanking me, thanking me, because people had told him what, what I had done in helping to galvanize the Caribbean community and the wider British community. And, you know, it, was, it sounded ridiculous to me because I'm trying to thank him for being a steadfast leader, you know? Um, but, so it's not my achievement, but I was so proud to be a part of that because I remember thinking to myself, before I die, I want to see a free South Africa. Mm. There were three things I wanted to see before I died. And two of them have come to pass. Okay. I wanted to see a free, I wanted to see a free East Timor. I don't know if you know about East Timor, the struggle of people of East Timor. Now they won their independence, they have a free state. I wanted to see a free South Africa. Mm -hmm. And this is even more relevant now than ever, especially today and yesterday and the day before, a free Palestine. Mm. Yeah. You know, and the thing that saddens me is that. The Palestinian struggle doesn't look anywhere near their near ending. Because let's put it bluntly, you know, the Americans back the Israelis so much. And Palestinian land is being taken every day. And people talk about this and talk about that, but they won't talk about the fact that the Palestinians are occupied, mm. a brutal occupation. It's worse than apartheid in a sense. Mm. And um, I hope we can see a free Palestine in some shape or form before I die. But at the moment, that just looks so far away. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were other little things as well, but those are the three main things. Yeah. And I mean, speaking to you today has been incredible. 
Um, you know, you've touched on so much. You've told me so much that I didn't know um, as well. And I mean, now you're currently the professor of poetry and creative writing at one of the top universities in the UK, Brunel University. Um, talk us through a typical working week for you as Professor Benjamin Zephaniah. <laughs> well, um, the strange thing is, is there's not much typical. <laughs> um, in terms of the work that I do at the university, I teach a module on performing poetry. So that is about how you perform poetry. I'm not really concerned with how you write it because sometimes you can write a poem that doesn't look very good on the page, but when the person performs it, they bring it to life. Mm. You know, so I'm about the oral tradition and I teach the history of oral poetry, be that about Homer or African oral traditions or Caribbean oral traditions. Mm -hmm. When people say spoken word, like it's a new cool thing, I say, no, 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 this goes back thousands of years. It's probably the first art form. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I teach. So, you know, I will have four or five lessons in a week, mm -hmm. depending on which part of the term it's in, sometimes less, but a lot of one-to-one -one tutorials with people who want to better their poetry. And that's sometimes trying to encourage people to speak their truth and not to be afraid to be political. Sometimes it verges on counseling. Mm which is sometimes rather sad. So, you know, um, I'm just trying to think how to put this. I'll just be really open and just say, sometimes it's people who are in families that are ultra-religious mm -hmm. and they feel uncomfortable in that family. And these can be Islamic families, Jewish families, Christian families, mm -hmm. you know? They want to burst out and express themselves with poetry, but they're scared of saying something. Mm. Um, and other things can be with just people that want to, um, sometimes I have people that are very privileged and they think I've got nothing to say, <laughs> you know, what can I talk about, you know, I'm a white guy, um, if I'm in if I have a problem, daddy just bails me out too, I got no problems, what can I write about Benjamin? Then I talk about solidarity, you know, not trying to be black, but just connecting with people. Um, sometimes I talk with um, black male students about relationship with black female students and vice versa. Um, and then within that week, I will also be doing some television, radio. Um, one thing I'm quite proud of, literally just on a couple of nights ago, so you can probably still hear it on iPlay. I was just in a program about the funeral of Bob Marley in Jamaica. Right, okay. Um, um, so, and I'm making a program at the moment, a TV program about the Windrush generation, but how they impacted on football. Brilliant. You know, so, um, like I said, nothing is really typical. Um, and then if my mum calls me, I've got to run to Birmingham, innit? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Listen, um, you know, if... This will be like the, I think this will be the last question I will ask you. Um, for people listening, especially those in the Jamaican and Caribbean diaspora who are perhaps sitting at home listening and they want to get into poetry, they want to get into music, they perhaps want to write a book or 
you know, they, they really want to get into that whole space of publishing and literature, what advice would you give them as someone who's done it, who's got the T-shirt and who's got all the awards to show for it? I mean, what words of advice can you offer? I guess, first of all, I would say go for substance rather than style. Fashions come and fashions go. As a dub poet, I've seen many things come, dance all, all kinds of things, but we are still here because we are speaking the truth. And we started something that was original. Originality and substance is much better than style. Style is fashion and they will come and they will go. And when you start writing, whatever you're writing may not be in style, may not be in fashion. Don't let that worry you. Don't let that worry you. There was a time when I would probably answer this question by saying, you know, write to publishers and things like this, you know, that is still important. But if you have something to say, work on your craft. Make sure you have a good craft. Don't think I wrote a poem, you know, and I, 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 I show it to me, excuse me, I show it to my brother and my sister and my girlfriend and, and, and them say it nice, so everything cool. I always say, well, you got to let complete strangers read it and then see how it affects them. You have to have what we call peer review. And so work on your craft and then try to, in a very positive and thoughtful way, use social media. You know, um, don't put rubbish up there, put good art up there and don't worry about the hits. Mm. Worry about, well, don't worry about it, but make sure you've got good quality work. And eventually, what you really need to do, and I think too many people think it's about selling themselves, what you really need to do is get somebody that cares about you, that can represent you. Yeah. You know, you shouldn't be able, shouldn't go into a publisher and say, well, I'm a great poet, I'm really good, my girlfriend likes me, my no, no, likes me, listen to this. You want somebody else going in there saying, have you seen this poet? Blah, blah, blah. And you're at home writing poetry. Yeah. You know? So understand the business to not get exploited. Um, I don't know if you know, there's a case going on at the moment with Trojan Records. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the, and the reason it's going on, uh, and I'm not on the front line of this, but I just know certain things about it, is because a lot of money was made by, by people from Jamaican music, mm-hmm. by Jamaican artists who didn't get paid. Wow. And those people became millionaires, some of them, wow. from Jamaican music. Why? Because the people didn't understand the business side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even I, when I was young, I got ripped off a little bit by a manager who just wanted some money. So understand the craft, understand the business. Don't rush to get out there. Quality is better than quantity. Substance is better than style. And especially to the women, don't think that you keep having to take your clothes off. I'm not, I'm not approved, right? You know what I mean? I, I, I'm not one of these people who say, oh, women are showing too much of their body. But there's this obsession at the moment in videos for women to be kind of stripped down and sexual objects. If you've got a good voice and you've got good talent, you don't need to take your clothes off. You know, 
don't don't get me wrong. I'm not against if you know if you a woman feels you want to do that on her own terms. That's you know that's her thing. But don't feel you have to do that for the business. Don't feel you have to do that for the business. And the same way I will say to men, don't feel you have to be a macho man if you want to, you know, to survive. Don't feel you got to put women down and call women bitches and hoes and, you know, this is what you do to a woman rather than this is what you do with a woman. Yeah. You know, all these stereotypes, you got to fight against them. So I'll stop there. <laughs> I, I could go on. <laughs> Listen, brilliant words of advice there. I mean, this this initial conversation, I was like, yeah, it's going to be 40 minutes. And I've just sort of let the conversation flow and go. Sorry, I talk a lot. <laughs> That's okay. Um, you know, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I really hope our listeners are going to get so much out of it, just like I have. Um, I want to thank you for taking part and telling us your incredible story. You know, you are one of our heroes. You are a Jamaican icon. You are a British icon as well. You are a Rastafarian icon, a vegan icon. I'm a naughty boy. Impacting Jamaica is powered by the Philip and Christine Gore Family Foundation. If you or anyone you know is involved with projects and activities that excite, motivate, and encourage, send us an email at impactingjamaica at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Do join us again for another in the series on Google Podcast, Audible, Spotify, Podcast Addict, and Stitcher. You can also visit us at impactingjamaica.com.